This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. Good morning. Hope you're doing well today. My name is Matt, and I want to talk to you about the power of focus. And I think this is something that is grossly underestimated in our culture. When you find a great project and fully invest yourself in it, it is incredible what can be done. Amazing what happens when people find their focus. I, mean, I think of the Beatles when they came off tour and they stopped uh, doing, playing the whole pop star game and just knuckled down in the studio. What happened? Sergeant Pepper happened. I think of the Apple team when they got together to create the first home computer with a graphical user interface and launched the Mac. I think of the war cabinet in the Second World War when in 1940 they got together across party lines. They stopped playing politics. They stopped focusing on looking better than the opposition, on criticizing the other. They stopped focusing on the non-essential tasks of government. And Britain stood alone against the might of the Nazis and held them off long enough and brought in the allies that they needed to actually, against all the odds, win the war. Do you think we could do that today with all the arguments and backbiting and obfuscating that goes on? I don't know. I think it's the power of focus. And this year we're beginning with the story of Nehemiah. And this story is almost a case study in focus. It's an idealized case study about leadership on a project and what it can achieve. And it's all about Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem to rebuild its walls. Now, why was he doing that? Well, the divided kingdom had been conquered. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken by the Assyrians. And then in 586, the Babylonians swept into Judah, into Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple. And the remaining Jews in the area were taken off into captivity and into exile. Now, later, the Persian Empire replaced the Babylonian Empire right across the ancient Near East. And the Persians were different to the Babylonians. You'll know the Persians because you've seen the film 300, right? They're, they're, they're the guys that Leonardo and his, his boys hold off. And they're the Persians. And the Persians have this huge empire right across the East. And the Persian Empire is an empire that gives people a little bit more autonomy, a little bit more say. Don't, don't paint them out to be nice people. Don't paint them out to be helpful people. They were colonizers. They were suppressors. They, they heavily taxed people. Don't, don't, don't get the wrong idea. But what they did do was allow a little bit more freedom of religion, a little bit more freedom of movement in order to keep the empire together, although there were frequent rebellions. And Nehemiah finds himself 1,200 miles uh, journey, about 800 miles as a crow flies from Jerusalem in the city of Susa, working for the king Artaxerxes, the, the king of the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah hears that back in his home city, back at home, back, his people have begun to gravitate back to their land, back to their home. 
their identity, the place that they believe was divinely given to them. They gravitate back to that place. But the people there are in trouble. The people are in disgrace. The people are suffering. And Nehemiah takes it upon himself to rebuild the walls. Now, it's already been said this year, we're here in this community about building bridges, not walls. But Nehemiah's wall, it wasn't a power projection. Nehemiah's wall wasn't to keep the poor out and the wealth in, like a lot of walls that we see today. No, we can't, we've got to understand this aright. You see, Nehemiah was representing the people who were oppressed. They weren't the empire building the wall. They were the ones suffering as a result of the empire. They were the ones who didn't have the security. So the poor were suffering. The oppressed were suffering. The weak were suffering. And they didn't have the security necessary. Anybody could walk into the city. You imagine in ancient culture, thousands of years ago, an empire spread amongst thousands of miles. How could they have kept order? How could they have stopped raids of barbarians? How could they have stopped thieves? How could they have stopped people just coming in at will into their city to do whatever they wanted to do? They had no walls. So Nehemiah, uh, uh, not as the king, not as the one who should be building the infrastructure, but actually representing and gathering the oppressed people, starts with a strategy of resistance. He starts to stand up for those who are being pushed down and oppressed in this place. And that's why he builds the wall. You see, these people were slaves, Nehemiah tells us, in their own land. And this was about taking on a project which was going to give them some dignity. It was going to give them some security. And Nehemiah began this project of building the wall. And we're going to pick this up in Nehemiah chapter 6 and see how far these guys have got. And in Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 1, it says that when the word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, this is Nehemiah writing, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sambala and Geshem sent me this message, come let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. You see, Nehemiah had this incredible focus. He was fully invested in this great project. And that's what helped him to keep on track. You know, I believe that God doesn't just want to save you. He doesn't want to just redeem you. He doesn't want just want to grace you. He wants to enlist you in his mission of making all things new. That there's actually a call to be involved in a great project. And Nehemiah believed in this project. He was committed to this project. He took a journey of 1,200 miles at great personal cost, at great personal risk to do this project Why? Because he believed in it. Because he was passionate about it. And the thing that I've discovered about focus, the thing that Nehemiah tells us about focus is this. If 
the cause doesn't compel you, convenience will derail you. If the cause doesn't compel you, convenience will derail you. What do most of us do from day to day? We do whatever is easiest in the moment. We take the path of least resistance because it's easy. You know, you know, we'd love to go to the gym, but sitting on the sofa eating crisps just feels great. It's easier right in that moment. And it was the same for Nehemiah. He had the same challenge. You see, if the cause doesn't compel you, convenience will derail you. Unless we have clear feedback about the impact of our decisions, we do whatever's easiest. We do the same at work. We sit behind a computer or on a production line or on a building site and we gravitate, we lean towards the tasks that are easiest, the tasks which which seem like they will be the least work or the easiest for us to pick up, the ones we fancy right there and then, unless we have a clear picture of the impact of what we do on the result. We tend towards convenience. But Nehemiah went way beyond that. You see, when you take on a responsibility, you give away convenience. So many of us don't want to do that. But great things, significant things, great projects, things that help you get out of bed in the morning are only done, are only participated in by those who take on a responsibility. You know, if you take on a responsibility in this community, you give away some convenience. Oh, hang on, I've got to turn up on time. I've got to turn up regularly. I've got to come earlier. I've got to give financially. I've got to commit. I've got to do it when it's difficult. I've got to move my schedule around. It's not convenient. That's what happens when you take on a responsibility. You give away some convenience. But if you're compelled by a cause, it constrains your actions. It says in Proverbs Chapter 29, there's this ancient wisdom saying in the book of Proverbs, and it says this, where there's no prophetic vision, people cast off restraint. When there isn't clear teaching, when people don't have a vision of what God says, of God's justice, of God's message, of God's truth, and what that would look like, how would things be different if God was in charge? What should things be like in this situation, in this place, in this relationship? Without a vision of that, the restraints that help us to uh, commit to the actions which will lead towards that result are thrown off. And what do we tend to towards? Whatever's easiest in the moment. And and things start to suffer. Our relationships uh, start to suffer. Our jobs start to suffer. Our projects start to suffer. And that is why it's so important to have a vision, a prophetic vision, to hear God's teaching, to hear a message, to hear a preferred future, to have something in mind of what your community should look like of what your street should look like, of what your family should look like, what your relationships, what about your work, what about the things you're involved in, what's your vision for your work, what's your picture of how things are going to be, what, what is the thing in your future of who you are becoming that constrains you, that motivates you, because without a vision of that, without constantly uh, putting before us this vision of greatness, we will surely degenerate. 
the cause doesn't compel you, convenience will derail you. This wasn't just a war. It was a vision of things set right. It was a vision of justice. It wasn't just a war. You know, the medieval quarry workers' creed was that we who cut stones must always be envisioning cathedrals. And what about in your everyday? What about in your tasks? What about in your relationships? What about in your work? What are you envisioning? Because if the cause doesn't compel you, convenience will derail you. The second thing I see here in Nehemiah is that if you don't recognize your enemy, you become vulnerable to compliance. Nehemiah had these enemies. We see them here in verse 1 of chapter 6. Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab. These were people with responsibility. These weren't uh, random people. You know, these were, you know, people giving you abuse who've got two followers on Twitter. You know, these were significant people. These were people who had leadership, who had responsibility, who had influence, who were well-connected, who were well within their rights to ask him what he was doing, to challenge what he was doing, to talk to him. But Nehemiah recognized, as it says in these verses we read, that they were scheming to harm him. He recognized that they wanted to shut down these works. He recognized them as an enemy. even though, See, Nehemiah wasn't a disrespectful person. We see the way he treated his master, even though he worked as a slave in a foreign land. He was respectful. He knew how to talk to people with respect. He knew how to honor a position of leadership. He did that on his journey as he met with the different kings and the different providers in the different regions that helped him with resources. Nehemiah respected the leadership of Ezra, who'd already been in Jerusalem before he arrived there. He was a respectful man. He knew how to do that. He didn't just uh, ignore and criticize everybody about them, but he recognized something in Sambala and Tobiah and Geshem, which was an enemy of the work, which was oppressing the work. He had his eyes open. And if you don't recognize what, what or who is an enemy and what's not, you become vulnerable to compliance with their agenda. It can derail you from the cause that you are involved in. Now, let me pause and say, are you tracking with me this morning? Are you with me? Are you leaning in? Are you focused? Because I know the ones who are focused. It's the ones who are un- already undertaking a great project. It's the ones who've already fully invested themselves. Because if you're thinking, Matt, I don't really have these concerns. Matt, I don't really have any enemies. I want to ask you, what are you doing? Because any significant undertaking encounters opposition. Any significant undertaking leaves us tired. It leaves us drained. And we come on a Sunday leaning in saying, this is my moment to get a word, to get a revelation, to get some encouragement, to get some truth, to get some wisdom for my situation that I am facing right now. And I want to encourage you, if you're not tracking with me, you've got to go back to that first point and you've got to get a prophetic vision. You've got to get a picture of the future which is going to motivate you and it's going to lead you into what God has for you. But if you don't recognize your enemy, you're going to become vulnerable to compliance. Let me tell you a truth. Your enemy doesn't usually have horns and a pitchfork. And I grew up with all this talk about the enemy. 
It's like this guy in a red suit. I would rather have a guy in a red suit. I I would any day take on a guy in a red suit. But listen, your enemy doesn't usually have horns and a pitchfork. It's the same for Nehemiah. His enemies were people who were respected, people who had position, people who had leadership, people who had influence, people who were integrated in the community. You might not think of them as an enemy, but Nehemiah recognized them. And listen, your enemy doesn't usually have horns and a pitchfork. And we've got to be careful that we don't caricature our enemies. Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, they weren't evil personified. There were people asking genuine questions. When they said, hey, aren't you trying to set up yourself as a king? Well, this man comes back, starts rebuilding the walls, which if you read Chronicles, is the royal responsibility. He starts building the walls. He starts taking leadership. He starts taking action. It's a fair question. You know, Tobiah's influence seems to wane during Nehemiah's leadership. He's asking genuine questions So we've got to be careful that we don't caricature our enemy, that anybody who asks a question, that anybody who opposes us is, is, you know, evil personified. You know, the guy in the red suit with the horns and the pitchfork is, is hiding behind them. No, listen, your enemy is usually a lot more subtle than that, and that's why you have to recognize your enemy. You see, your enemy sometimes is as subtle as distraction. And Nehemiah was tempted here. He was tempted to lose his focus. And you know, the things that take away your focus are your true enemy. And you've got to be vigilant. You've got to recognize that. Because if you get taken away from focus, you can get taken away from the important cause that you are invested in. Listen, don't caricature your enemies. In the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I want to say this. This is language that Paul had. It was language that the Jews had. It was their religious... uh, otherworldly kind of language that they had about to talk about what was going on in the world. Now, when we talk about things today, like, for example, in the news, we'll say things like economic forces and the powers that be and shifting attitudes. And I think we're talking about the same thing. We're saying, look, your enemy's not the person across from you. Jesus said, no, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you because it's not them. They're a human being loved by God. So don't caricature them. What we need to realize is behind that there's a spirit, there's an attitude, there's an intention, there's a way of thinking, there's a way of acting, there's a mindset, there's a worldview, there's a belief which is contrary to the will of God, which is contrary to the best for you, which is contrary to human freedom and liberation. And we need to recognize that enemy, that challenge, that spirit, not that person. You see, your enemy can be as subtle as distraction. We see this all the time. Check out this little 30-second video. Is your relationship with friends, family, and yourself too good? Introducing the smartphone. 
This revolutionary device will ruin conversations and gatherings with your most cherished of family and friends. On a date, during quiet times of introspection, even during those <clears throat> intimate moments. This amazing piece of technology can be all yours for the price of true companionship, meaningful conversation, and any chance at a healthy relationship with other humans on this planet. What? You see, it's as subtle as distraction. You see, some of you haven't even been able to concentrate for the last 20 minutes because you've been getting notifications on your phone. What's that about? You see, in your relationships, you might have a vision for your family, the kind of father, the kind of mother that you want to be, the kind of sibling you want to be, the, the kind of husband or wife you want to be. You've got a vision for that, but the thing is, often we're just distracted. Can I encourage you, if you're with someone, be with them. Be present. Be invested. Be with them. If you're playing with your kids, you don't need a telephone. Play with your kids. Be there because the enemy of, you, you know, we th the enemy's out there, you know, what's going to happen to my kids, you know, they're going to be influenced this way, you know, somebody could attack them, somebody could harm them. The real enemy is that you're just going to be too distracted. And that whole childhood is going to go by with you distracted instead of you present. And we build up our enemies into these bogeymen when often... The real enemy, the thing that's going to get more of us, is much more subtle than that. You know, this happens in our work. We're distracted. We do what's easiest. It's a lot easier to check email than it is to actually sit down and write that funding bid. It's a lot easier when, when you're in the middle of a creative task that gets difficult and you get to a roadblock to just stop and change away from this low-stimuli, high-value activity to a high-stimuli, low-value activity like checking Instagram. It's like you're working on something, you're working on something, you get to that block and... I'll just pick up my phone for a minute. We're working and we've got 12 tabs open and we're surfing the internet and checking the news and having a bit of an online shop and then back to our work and we're distracted. And it's as subtle as that. And just as it applies to the big things, it applies to the vision for our life. It applies to what we invest ourselves in. It applies to our mission. It applies to our everyday. It applies to our interactions with people. It applies to our tasks. It applies to our work and, and the things that we are, are doing. It applies just the same, that our enemy is often as subtle as distraction. And what we're doing when we're constantly distracted, we're constantly switching between tasks, we're always on. We're actually rewiring our brain to the point where it can no longer focus. The late professor at Stanford, for those who don't know, it's one of the best top ten universities in the world, Clifford Nass, says this in one of his, uh, in one of his interviews, that people who multitask all the time can't filter out irrelevancy. They can't manage a working memory. They're chronically distracted. They initiate much larger parts of the brain that are irrelevant to the task at hand. They're pretty much mental wrecks. They're suckers for irrelevancy. They just can't keep on task. Let me encourage you, if you do work that is in any way creative, if you're an artist or a leader or a, a manager, or a writer, or a designer, or 
an architect or any aspect where you have to knuckle down and concentrate and do something. You've got to wean yourself off this stuff and learn how to focus. And see, Nehemiah was smart. See, when the word came that they'd rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. You see, in chapter 4, his enemies were insulting him and his enemies were saying, even if a fox goes up on that wall, it's going to fall over. They were mocking him. But at this point, Nehemiah's got some credibility. Hang on, these guys have nearly finished. Hang on, these guys are making good progress. Hang on, this isn't like that failed attempt, which we can read about in the book of Ezra. These guys are legitimate. These guys are serious. And what happens is the enemy begins to change their strategy. They begin to realize that these guys are a credible outfit, but they haven't yet 100% finished. They haven't yet gone over the line. So they change their strategy. And in verse 2, they say to him this, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Ono was about 20 miles away, northwest of Jerusalem. This would have taken Nehemiah away from the work for a meeting. Hey, just a tip for all you knowledge workers, all you people who work behind computers. That's what meetings usually are. Meetings are usually something that takes you away from actually doing the real work. And this is exactly what this was. And these people began to rise up. It says that Sambalat was a Horonite. Horonite means the men of anger. Sometimes when you're doing well, when you're seeing success, when you've nearly got to the breakthrough and people realize you're credible, they begin to get angry with you. Anger begins to rise up. Sometimes people are scheming, like it says here, to harm you 20 miles away. Maybe they could have ambushed him on the way. It was far enough away. Maybe there was, there was some sort of plan. There was some sort of plot going on that Nehemiah had an insight to. Or maybe it was just a distraction. It was just something taking him away from the work. Whatever, Nehemiah's response works. Because Nehemiah says this. He doesn't even go himself. I love it. He sends messengers with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it? And go to you. I love it. Four times they sent me this same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. How cool is that? Four times. No. Not interested. Talk to my messenger. I'm doing something significant. Four times. It's not until the fifth time when they give him a specific reason for the meeting. That he even acknowledges their problem. He even acknowledges their reason. I love it. Four times. In fact, I've got this last bit of the verse, 6.3b, on screen here. And I think every one of us should memorize it. I think every one of us should learn it. I think every one of us should use this day by day when the email starts pinging and the desire to look at the social media calls and you open your computer, do some work, but you find yourself web browsing. When that that challenge comes into your life, when that person who's trying to distract you from the purposes of God, when that ease and that convenience, which is just easier to stay in bed, just easier to, to have a day off, it's just easier to skip it, it's just easier to not bother, I think every one of us should memorize and we should speak to our real enemy and we should learn to say, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to go down to you? Don't even engage with triviality. 
Don't even engage with something so small that it is not worth your time. The band are going to come up and join me as we move on to this final point. Don't even engage with it. Because listen, the insults and schemes of, of the enemies couldn't hurt him unless. And the same for you. The, the criticism you've received, the things that conspire against you, the scheme won't hurt you unless you fall for it. Their insults can't hurt you unless you take them to heart so much that it stops you from doing the work. I love what Nehemiah prayed in 6 verse 9. They were, it says this, that they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. So I prayed, la, 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 make it stop, make it go away. These people are really nasty. Please, will you tell them to shut up? No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He says this, God, strengthen my hands. I love it. Strengthen my hands. They, they may insult me. They might scheme to harm me. They rhyme, may rise up in anger against me. They try and turn people away from me. They may just be distracting me and just trying to get me for one day to put my tools down, to go to a meeting. But no, strengthen my hands. You see, if you don't harness the power of focus, you'll be diverted by distraction. Oh, look, a squirrel. If you don't harness the power of focus, you'll be diverted by distraction. What do you do when you have a spare five minutes? Wife goes out of the room to make a cup of tea. You're waiting in line at a coffee shop. You're early for a meeting. What do you do? You take out your phone, don't you? But you know, actually, we need to strengthen our distracting, resist, distraction-resisting muscles. Your attention is like a muscle that tires. Psychologists and sociologists have demonstrated this. And we're teaching ourselves, we're rewiring our brain to the point where we can't focus anymore. So what we need to do is some of the time we need to say, you know what? I'm going to stand in this line. I'm going to queue with a company of my own thoughts. Because I'm going to resist programming myself that every time something's hard, every time I have a minute, every time my attention gets shifted off, I just grab something to stimulate me. No, I'm going to resist that. I'm going to put that away because I don't want my brain to work that way. I want the ability to focus because if I can focus on what's important, then maybe I can start like Nehemiah to be a one who God will use, to be one who is involved in something significant. We need to learn to say yes to what is most important. And then act on the lead measures. Act on the things that will make the most difference to the project. Act on that 20% that's going to make that 80% difference. To leave the busy work, to leave the triviality, and to begin to act and begin to invest ourselves in our relationships, in our daily work. But also, when we think about the mission that we've been called to, when we think about what we're participating in, that what we uh, have been called to be a part of, that what God wants to enlist us to be a part of, that we would actually give our best to it and we would act on the things that are going to make the most difference and let the other things fall away. Because this is what happened in Nehemiah. 
a wall that lay broken for 140 years. A wall that had failed to be rebuilt by previous groups who'd attempted it. In Nehemiah chapter 26, it says, this wall that lay broken for 140 years was completed in 52 days. That is the power of focus. So what this week are you going to focus on? What are you going to take away? Do you need to get with God? Do you need to reflect and think and have a vision which constrains you? Do you begin to need to recognize the things that are taking you off track into things that are trivial and realign yourself with what's more important? Do you need to train yourself in those distraction-resisting muscles to go to the gym in your mind to be able to focus? And maybe, this may be, we too can be involved in something significant. And what maybe lay broken even for 140 years in your life can be rebuilt. Even like Nehemiah, through the power of focus, can be done in 52 days. Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.